morning to you. My name is Grant Beachy. I am the associate pastor over at Cross Park Church down in South Charlotte. And it really is a pleasure to be able to be with you all this morning and honored to open God's word to you in a moment. We will be continuing our series through the Ten Commandments, looking at the Ninth Commandment this morning. Before I read the text, I recognize that I don't know many of you hardly at all. Most of you I've never met before in my life, but I know at least two things about you. One, you were made in the image of God. You were made in the image of God. The, the, the being who existed, exists before all time, before anything was, made you intentionally, purposefully, uniquely. And what it means for individual people to be made in the image of God is that they have an immense value, a dignity, a worth that we can't really come to terms with. You have dignity. You have value because you were made in God's image. You have inestimable worth before God Almighty. He made you in his image. Another thing that it means for you to have been made in God's image is that you have purpose. You're not just kind of willy-nilly, luck of the draw, let's see how it turns out. No, you were made on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose is to reflect God's glory like a mirror reflects the light. You were made in this world uniquely as you are to demonstrate to those around you, to the world, the character, the beauty of God himself. Because you were made in God's image, you have immense dignity and value. And you have purpose in this world. And the second thing that I know about you is that that image is broken. God created a mirror, as it were, to reflect his glory back to him. And because of our fall into sin, the mirror has been thrown on the floor and shattered. And the shards of that glass are now embedded in every part of your being. The way your brain works, the way your heart works, the way your body functions, your relationships. Everything has been tainted, affected by sin. The image of God has been broken in you. And that leads to all kinds of other brokenness, all kinds of sin, the Bible calls it. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is truth. That's a real thing. But because of our sin, we suppress it. We push it down. We ignore it. We deny it. And that suppression of truth shows up in at least 10 different ways. We have gods other than God. We bow down to them and worship them. We take God's name in vain. We don't honor the Sabbath. We disobey our parents. We hate other people. We're full of lusts. And we tell lies. It's true of you that you were made in God's image and that image has been broken. And one of the ways that that brokenness shows up is your tendency, your temptation, just like mine, to deceive and to tell lies lies. But God in his grace gave us his law. 
to remind us of what being in his image looks like. He gave us his law not so much so that we could earn our salvation through it, not so much that we could achieve acceptance with God by obeying the law, because even this morning you failed. He gave us his law. Having saved us, he gave us his law so that we might know what it looks like to be saved, so that we might live life as those who are free, not as those who are enslaved to their various lusts and lies and idolatries. What does it look like to live free? Well, we can look at God's law and read there, and we'll do so now from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, for the sake of context, and verse 16. Hear now God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask now, gathered here, that you would open your word to us. Give us spiritual eyes to see what is true, what is real. Help us even to see things about ourselves that we might be uncomfortable with. But in seeing them, help us to bring them to the foot of Jesus, where they might be healed and where we might be set free, that we might live in the truth, even as Jesus the Savior is the truth. So help us now by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Just to say immediately, that has a lot more to say than just don't lie in court. That's an obvious example. Don't lie in court. But as you hopefully will recall from our Heidelberg Catechism reading, there's a lot more involved in don't bear false witness against your neighbor than just not lying in court. It has to do with how we speak about our neighbor, absolutely. It has to do with how we speak about God. It has to do with how we speak, even how we think about ourselves. All of the commands, as you've worked your way through the Ten Commandments, all of them get below the surface, right? It's not simply enough for me to tell you, stop it. Stop deceiving yourself. Stop lying to other people. Be truthful. You should. I mean, you should be truthful. You should stop lying. You should stop deceiving. But just the mere command to do so doesn't really do any good, does it? Just like the thought, I'm going to eat a more balanced diet. I might for a day, but good grief. Sugar is so tasty. The mere command isn't enough to change the behavior. We've got to get below the surface, right? We've got to deal with the motivations. We've got to deal with our affections, not just our actions. If we deal with what's going on in the heart, because didn't Jesus say it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks? You can try and change what comes out of the mouth, but the only way you're going to get that in any sort of lasting way 
is to change what goes on in the heart. So this morning we're going to look at two big categories, why we're enslaved to lies and how the truth in Jesus sets us free, even sets our hearts free, so that we can not only tell the truth, but we can be truthful people, even as Jesus is the truth. So first, let's think about how we're enslaved to lies. A few minutes ago, I talked about you being made in God's image. And we learned that from Genesis 1 and 2. So if you want to know more about what it means to be made in God's image, go to the first page of the Bible or go to the top of your app, Genesis 1, and just start reading. You'll learn more about what it means to be made in God's image, to reflect his glory in this world. But to understand our slavery, to understand our heart's motivations to why are we so prone to lie, why are we tempted to deceive, we'll look at the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3, and particularly two verses that we find there. You may remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in a garden. It's beautiful. It's perfect. Four rivers are running through it. Adam names the animals. He gets a wife. God, there's one thing that God tells Adam not to do. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is yours. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And wouldn't you know, That's exactly what Adam and Eve do. They eat from the tree that they were forbidden to eat from. And that introduced this sin thing into the world. And it brought uh, brokenness and it, it inserted death into this beautiful system that God had made. But then immediately after, we're told that Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, God shows up. God shows up in the Garden of Eden with them. And though it would have been right for him to schwack them, as it were, that's what they deserved, that's what God had told them would happen, if you eat this fruit, you will die. God would have been well within his rights to have ended Adam and Eve, and humanity would have never made it past day two. But God shows up and in grace asks Adam a question. Verse 9 of Genesis 3, where are you? And Adam's answer is instructive for us, and it will help kind of set the the categories for us as we think through our heart's motivations. Adam responds to God's question, where are you, with this answer. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. In Adam's response, we see the effect that the fall has had on us. And that response is so deeply ingrained in us that it's fair to say it's a representation, a reflection of us. And we're going to use that response as three motivations to lie. There are plenty of motivations to lie beyond these three. But for our purposes, we'll just consider these three. Fear, shame, and hiding. Okay, let's think about fear first. Adam says, I was afraid. Fear is a powerful motivation to lie. And there are two ways that we can, two things we can be afraid of often. One of those is negative consequences. And and that's what was going on with Adam here. He knew that if he sinned against God, if he broke the law, that he would be punished. And so having broken the law, he knew that what he deserved was to be punished. So he's afraid. Now the text 
in Genesis 3 actually shows us Adam being honest. Uh, he's a little blame shifty. This woman you gave me, she made me do it. Um, I did it, but it's her fault. And this woman you gave me, so Adam's blaming both God and his wife before he finally takes a little bit of credit for the sin. But for us, we can feel this fear of negative consequences and it can cause us to lie or be tempted to lie. You know you're wrong and so you try to shade the truth to shield yourself from the negative consequences. It's the child who's been asked if they've done their chores. Did you clean your room? Yeah, Ma, I cleaned my room. You know you didn't clean your room. You just don't want to get grounded, so you lie. Now, it's not just children. The boss can ask, hey, did you send, that, send me that TPS report? Any of you remember what TPS reports are? Y- yeah, boss, yeah, it, it should be in your inbox. Maybe it went to your spam folder. You never sent that report, but you don't want to get in trouble, so you lie. You say, maybe it went to the spam folder. You understand the temptation. You're afraid of a negative reaction, so you make up something. The wife asks you to go pick up milk on your way home from work. Honey, did you get the milk? Oh, um, having not gone to the store to get the milk, having totally forgotten. Uh, no, the, the store was out of milk today. Because you don't want to sleep on the couch, so you lie. Another example of what we're afraid of in addition to negative consequences, we're afraid of something good. We're afraid we might miss out on something good. We're afraid of getting something bad. We're also afraid of missing out on something good. This is why 17-year-olds lie about their age so they can get into the party. This is why I was tempted this week to lie about my knowledge of Charlotte. My wife and I and our kids moved here less than a year ago, so we're still very new to Charlotte. Today is my first Venture into your fair part of the city. Lovely thing you got going on over here in South End. We live in Matthews, which is great. We love living in Matthews. But we wanted to look at some Facebook Marketplace stuff. And you may or may not know, but there are neighborhood-specific Facebook Marketplace groups. And there are nicer neighborhoods in Charlotte. And you can apply to be a member of this Facebook marketplace group where the nicer houses are with the nicer stuff and the people that might want to sell that nicer stuff. And so we found one of these swanky Facebook marketplace groups and I applied, not living in the fancy swanky place of Charlotte. One of the questions they asked, this is how they filter out the wannabes, In addition to asking for your zip code, they also ask for your favorite street in Charlotte. Now, if you're the administrator of said Facebook Marketplace, good on you. That's great. Thank you for putting that together. But the question was, what's your favorite street in Charlotte? You know what my first thought was? I need to open up Google Maps and look in this neighborhood and find a cute little quaint street. I'll even go with the street view something that only people that live in that part of town are going to know about. I was tempted like that to lie about my knowledge of Charlotte City Street so that I could watch, so I could get into a Facebook marketplace group so I could buy stuff I don't even need, but it'll be nicer stuff than what I could probably get in Matthews. I was tempted to lie because I was afraid of missing out on something. 
Fear is a powerful motive to deceive, to not tell the truth. Sometimes we're afraid of negative consequences because we know we've done something wrong and we deserve what's coming to us and we don't want it to come, so we try to shield ourselves with a little lie. Sometimes we're afraid we might miss out on something good, something fun, and so we are tempted to lie. Maybe you have experiences even this past week of where you've shaded the truth. You haven't wanted to call it a lie. It's a little white lie. You you comfort yourself. It's not a big deal. But if you're deceiving other people, you're breaking the ninth commandment. And you've done it this week. And you know you have. There's another powerful motive to lie, and it's shame. What's the second thing Adam says? I was afraid because I was naked. Shame is a temptation to lie. Did you know that the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, right before the account of, the, of Adam and Eve eating of the fruit, the last verse is such a curious way to end a chapter of the Bible. But Genesis 2.25 reads, The man and his wife were both naked, awkward, and were not ashamed. Oh, not awkward. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's interesting as you read through the narrative because it's like, oh, that's an interesting detail. Well, what happens as soon as Adam and Eve eat the fruit? They see that they're naked. They hadn't felt the shame of it before. They were completely comfortable with who they were and what they weren't wearing. But all of a sudden, because sin has been introduced, now they're ashamed. Shame can cause us to lie. And oftentimes, shame is because of things we've done, but some of the more powerful shame operative in our lives is because of things other people have done to us that aren't even our fault. But those things can have such a traumatic effect on us that they shape the way we even use our words, the way we talk, the way we present ourselves because we're ashamed. The, The feeling of being exposed, the feeling of being known as being inadequate, not enough. It leaves you feeling insecure, rejectable. It leaves you feeling disgusting. Repulsive. Shame is a powerful, powerful motivator to lie. A silly, simple example is from the show The Office. Do you remember the push-up challenge? Those of you that have watched the show, there was a a gauntlet throwdown of 25 push-ups. If you can do more than 25 push-ups, you get the day off. Well, everybody pushes their office chairs away and gets down on the floor and starts doing push-ups and the camera's panning around to various people doing push-ups and it comes to Jim right down on the ground and he's pushing out 17 and he's spent and his eyes raise up and he meets the, his eyes meet the camera and he knows that he's just been found out as being spent at 17 push-ups and what's he say oh, I had a really hard workout this morning no you didn't You're just ashamed that Michael could do more push-ups than you. He's tempted to lie because he's ashamed about 
his body's ability to do push-ups. You know something of that experience, certainly. Maybe you don't use the word shame, but you understand the feeling of being repulsive, of feeling disgusting, of feeling like you are utterly and completely rejectable. You know what that's like. And so too, it wouldn't surprise me then that you know what it's like to shade the truth, to protect yourself from that feeling Ashamed to face the truth about myself or allow others to see it. When I go to the beach, I don't like the beach, um, even though it's my last name. I don't know, maybe it's the sand, that's part of it. I don't like the sand. But I don't want to be presented with the situation in which I should take my shirt off. Now, I'll say it's because I don't want to burn. And trust me, I can burn. Y'all look at me, I can burn. I don't want to burn, but I don't want you to see pale and flabby. That's shame. It shapes the way we think of ourselves. It shapes the way we talk about ourselves. It shapes the way we interact with other people. And it can cause us to want to lie, to deceive. Fear and shame are two very powerful motives to lie, but there's a third here in Adam's response. Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He tried to cover himself up. Now, the text tells us he used fig leaves to cover himself up. That's what he had on hand, a a broad, big enough leaf that you can sew some of them together and and cover your uh, shameful bits. Now, I'm glad to see that none of you are wearing fig leaves this morning. Though it is good that you're all wearing something. Appreciate that. That's good. It doesn't have to be fig leaves, though. In a deeper sense, we're all trying to cover ourselves. And not just with the polos and the khakis and the pretty dresses. We're trying to cover the deeper parts of ourselves that we're ashamed about. And we're afraid people will see and reject us because of that. We are all trying to curate an image of ourselves that we think other people will like and receive. It's the curated fig leaves of a false self. And we expend massive amounts of energy and time and resource on curating this false image, don't we? Lots of energy we spend, lots of time trying to make ourselves appear a certain way. And of course, this applies to social media. But you don't have to have an Instagram account to be curating a false self. We're all doing it. We embellish stories. That fish was so big. No, it wasn't. We fib about our accomplishments. I lettered in four sports in high school. (laughs) Yeah, and then peaked at 19. You didn't letter. We're trying to curate an image of ourselves. I want you to think certain things about me. We're ashamed of what we are. And we're afraid that the truth might actually be known, so we cover. We cover ourselves. Desperate for people to think we're something we're not. Fear, shame, and hiding, covering. These are... Powerful motives to lie, to deceive, to bear false witness, 
to other people and about ourselves. But God, in his grace, knowing all that about us, speaks into our context and he says, you shall not bear false witness. And that's actually a word of grace. It's actually God in his kindness reminding us of what it means to be human. Because what you and I are doing with this fear and shame and covering is we're living less than the human lives God designed for us to live. But God shows up in his mercy and his grace and says, don't bear false witness. That's actually what it means to be human is to live in the truth. And why does that mean what it means to be human? Because we were made in God's image to be a reflection of him. And Numbers 23, 19 tells us that God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Does God speak and then not act? Does God promise and not fulfill? These rhetorical questions are obviously answered no. When God promises something, he fulfills it. When God speaks, he acts. But you and I, we're full of lies and deception, not so God, because he is the truth. And we who are made in his image ought to be truthful because we're bearing his image. We're meaning to reflect him in his beauty and his goodness and his truthfulness. But we fail to bear that image. So what's to be done? Try harder? Well, that doesn't work. I mean, you can try. But it's only going to last so long. Because it goes down deep, doesn't it? As we've seen, these motivations are deep. They're in there way deep. And in order for us to be truthful people, the deep parts of us have to be changed. Not just the surface stuff. And that's a deep change that you on your own cannot effect. You need someone from the outside to come in and change you. And that's what Jesus does. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. To fully, to faithfully, to from the heart bear the image of God. To be the image of the invisible God, the scriptures tell us. And in so doing, he changes the hearts of all those who come to him. The scriptures say we have hearts of stone because of sin. And what Jesus does is he removes that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that is now able to respond to God from the heart, genuinely, in truthfulness. So it shouldn't surprise us when Jesus, when he's on the scene, says, I am the truth. So that in John 8, he can say, you will know the truth, that is me, And the truth will what? Set you free. Jesus knows that we are enslaved, among other things, but to lies. And the only way for us to be freed from our slavery to lies is if the God of heaven and earth takes on human form and comes and lives the life that we should have lived but failed to because of our rebellion and our rejection of God's ways and our sin that goes all the way down to our core. But Jesus didn't have that sin nature, did he? He lived perfectly, 
obediently, faithfully, from the heart. Never an errant thought. Never an errant affection. Never an action that was out of accord with God's will. Fully faithful all the time. And they killed him anyway. An unjust murder. The only innocent person ever in the history of the universe. And there he is hanging on a cross. Paying a debt that is yours. Paying the debt that you owe because of your rebellion, because of your rejection of God and his ways, because of your lies. And Jesus went to that cross willingly because he loves you. And he wants to set you free. So let's think for just a few moments about how the good news of Jesus sets us free from lying. And we'll look particularly at those three deep motivations of fear, shame, and hiding as we do so. In our sin, we are enslaved to lies, but in Jesus, we are free to be truthful. And here's how. Let's think about fear. We're afraid of negative consequences. What does the Bible tell us that we deserve because of our sin? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so everybody in here, every human that's ever lived apart from Jesus has been a sinner. And that means, as we just sang, we are all sinners. That means, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The legitimate negative consequence that you and I deserve because of our sin is to die and be forever separated from God. That's what we deserve. That is the negative consequence par excellence. There is no negative consequence that's worse than that. Not getting the job promotion, nothing compared to spending eternity in hell. Not getting invited to the party, big deal compared to being eternally separated from God. Right? Do you understand? This is the negative, the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you is going to hell for your sin. Does Jesus have anything to say about that? Why did Jesus die on a cross? To pay your debt. So you could be free from the guilt of your sin. He took on the punishment. He took on the penalty. He took on the pain. He took on the death so that you wouldn't have to. You know what that means? The worst possible thing that could happen to you now won't because it happened to Jesus instead. If the worst possible thing that could happen to you isn't going to happen to you anymore, what do you have to lie about? If you believe in Jesus, your sin penalty has been removed from you. It's been placed on him. God would now be unjust at the day of judgment to hold your sin against you if you believe in Jesus. If you show up in glory and say, I shouldn't be here, but I believe in Jesus, God would be unjust and everything would fall apart if he then punished you for your sin, which was already forgiven in Jesus. But he's just, and he's true. And so if you show up in Jesus' name, you are forgiven. The worst consequence has been dealt with. You're free. You're free. You're afraid of missing out on things. What could be better? than being invited and welcomed in to an eternal feast 
with the God who made all things. Friends, there's one party you don't want to miss the invitation to. And here's the invitation. Jesus saying to you, come to me and rest. And for all who come to Jesus and find their rest in him, he will give rest to their souls. And that is a rest that, is, that spans eternity. And it brings you into the wedding feast of the Lamb where you get to spend eternity with God and all his saints and all the holy angels. If you have that, so what if you miss out on a party here or a party there? If you have that, so what if you don't get the promotion? Sure, there, there will be things you miss out on in this life if you're believing in Jesus. Yes. Jesus said, in this world, if you follow me, you will have tribulation. Following Jesus doesn't make life easier here. It actually makes it harder. Okay? Because you learn to say no to all the things that the world says, yes, 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 I must have it. The Jesus follower can say, eh, take it or leave it. When I was in middle school, the church that I was involved with had a program called Boys Brigade. And uh, it was kind of like uh, Boy Scouts, but in the local church. And we had hats made up, said brigade on them, bright white letters on a navy blue cap, whatever. And uh, brigade across the, the, the hat. Now, also, when I was in middle school, I wanted to be cool. And I, I, I was a Jesus follower. I'd been baptized in, in the church. Um, but I also had friends that didn't know Jesus. They didn't go to church. And, and some of us were skateboarders, and I wanted to be cool and liked by them. And so one day we were hanging out. Um, and, and I don't know if anybody remembers, there was a certain skateboarding team, probably in the early, late 80s, early 90s, from Pal Peralta, the skateboard company, called the Bones Brigade. We had Tony Hawk in there. This is old school Tony Hawk when he's like 19. Uh, uh, Steve Caballero, um, a number of other guys that as a sixth grader I idolized. The Bones Brigade, so cool. Well, one day when I'm hanging out with my friends, I'm wearing the hat, the brigade hat. And one of the guys asked, hey, man, what's up with that hat? And I immediately felt like if I say that this is for my church and it's like a youth group thing, they're going to make fun of me. That was, that's shame, right? That's um, um, it's fear. I'm afraid of missing out on their acceptance and their friendship. So instead of saying, yeah, it's, it's something with my church, I'd love for you guys to come sometime. My sixth grade self, immature in the gospel, said, oh, it's, it's for the Bones Brigade, but like the Bones War, that part wore off. And so it's, you know, it's for the skateboard folks. Ironically, you know, brigade isn't like perfect lettering. It's, there's no way that it wore off. But I lied about it because I was ashamed that they might know the truth and they might not like me. They may not like me. What was I valuing in that moment? I was valuing being accepted and received. But listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, there are going to be things you miss out on. There may be a girlfriend, you have to, a girl, you have to say, no, you know what, I can't date you. There may be a boy that you have to say, you know what, no, we can't shack up together. There may be a promotion you can't take because you're trying to follow Jesus and live with integrity. 
That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said as much in Matthew 19. Everyone who's left houses or, bro- or brothers or sisters or family or mothers or, or mother or children or lands for my name's sake. He's saying, look, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to live for my name's sake, there's going to be stuff you have to leave behind. Maybe even your closest relationships. Maybe the thing that makes you feel most alive, you might have to let that go. Because following me is something better. But Jesus promises everyone who's left anything for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. See, there's something better. And if we know that there's something better, we're willing to miss out now. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ turns our fear of negative consequences or our fear of missing out, it turns our fear into contentment. Your outline has contentment and confidence. Cattywampus, I got that wrong when I emailed it. Fear, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, is turned into contentment because a heart that is content in Jesus doesn't lie. You see how the motive to lie is taken away? I have everything I need in Jesus. I don't have to lie because I'm afraid. The motive of shame is also dealt with in the gospel in this way. Shame says you're worthless. You're ugly. You're repulsive. No one would love you. You're filthy. Now, some of you have that kind of language on repeat in your brain. I know you do because I do. The self-hatred talk, the self-loathing. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says something different. For those that rest in Jesus, for those that believe in him, the worst about you, which, by the way, you don't actually know, the worst about you is known by God and you are still not rejected. God knows all things. That stupid stuff you did last night, he knows. The things that nobody else in this room could conceive of where you've been and what you've done or or would want to imagine the things that have been done to you, God knows all that. It's not news to him. And he still says to you, come to me and rest. The invitation is made to all. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me will find rest for their souls. Come to me who's ever weary, Whoever is heavy laden, your shame weighs on you like seven tons of brick. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. What characterizes you, you feel like, your shame says that what characterizes you is that worst thing. That abuse that happened to you, that stupid mistake you did, whatever it was, that thing you feel most shameful about, shame says This is what characterizes you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, no, no, no. The beauty of Jesus is what characterizes you. Because listen, here's what happens in the gospel. Not only does he free us from the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross, he also lived a perfect life that is called righteousness that he then gives, gives free of charge to you, to all who believe in him. So he forgives your sin, which is great. But that only gets you to a zero balance, right? If you go to the bank and you're $79 million in debt, a bunch of y'all probably bankers, 
You go to the bank. You could correct my math here if I make any math mistakes. But you go to the bank, you're $79 million. They say they forgive the debt. That's great, but you're still broke. You still don't have any money. But what you need in relationship with God is an infinite amount of spiritual currency. So forgiveness is great. Praise God that he forgives our sin. But if, if the Christian message was only forgiveness, you would still be required to earn your righteousness. Because what God requires is not innocence. He requires perfection. And those are two different things. He doesn't require a zero balance in your bank account. He requires an infinite amount of spiritual capital. And you ain't got it. And neither do I. That's the bad news. But, beloved, the good news is this. Jesus does have it, and he gives it away to whoever wants it. So what you have in the gospel is not only the forgiveness of your sin, you have the, the, the gift of righteousness that covers you. So now what defines you, what characterizes you, is not that shameful thing. It's the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus. When God the Father looks on you in Christ, what does he see? He doesn't see that stupid stuff from last night. He doesn't see that shameful thing from your childhood. He sees the righteousness of his son. And he will not reject his son. In Jesus, you are not rejectable. You are accepted. You are loved. You are welcomed in forever. And nothing can remove that from you. Shame melts away at the foot of the cross and at the door to the empty tomb. Shame melts away. Now it can take years. It can take years for that truth to settle in and percolate in our souls in such a way that we begin to believe it. I came to Christ when I was four years old. That was four decades ago. And I'm just beginning to understand the gospel's effect on shame and how it frees me because I now am dressed in the righteousness of of Jesus. I want to take you to, a, to two Old Testament passages. I, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't, listen. So long before Jesus ever showed up, this shame removal plan was already in place from God's word. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 54 says to us, fear not, you don't have to fear, for you will not be ashamed. <laughs> Two of the things that Adam was struggling with that you and I struggle with, fear and shame. God says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. That's a promise that God makes to his people. You will forget the shame of your youth. Well, that sounds great, but how does that work? How does that happen? I can't just forget it. I've been trying for years to forget the shame of my youth, and I can't. So God, how does that happen? Well, seven chapters later in Isaiah 61, we read from the passage that Jesus quoted when he showed up and began his earthly ministry. Jesus says, part of why I have come is to, Isaiah 61 verse 3, grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. 
They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. A garment of praise wrapped around you, provided for you, given to you in grace by Jesus. And then in verse 10, we read, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. What did Adam do as soon as he sinned? He tried to clothe himself with fig leaves. How long do you think those lasted? Long enough for God to take them off and for God to kill an animal and skin it and cure the hide and provide Adam and Eve with a garment that will last. That's what happened in Genesis 3. It's what God promises in Isaiah 61, to wrap his people, to clothe them with garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus does. He clothes those that come to him in a robe of righteousness, in garments of salvation, so that your shame is no longer what characterizes you, but Jesus' beauty is what characterizes you. The gospel turns shame into confidence. How would your life be different if you went day to day knowing that you were clothed in the righteousness of Jesus? How would your interactions with your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your extended family, your neighbors, how would all those interactions change if you didn't have to cover yourself anymore? You could just be honest. You could just be truthful. So this is how the gospel frees us from lying, deceiving ourselves and deceiving others. We don't have to, I mean, think about it. Can you curate a better image? Can you create a better garment? Can you craft a better covering than what God has provided for you in Jesus? I mean, let's be honest. Let, let's take, let's just consider for a moment the, the coverings that we try to craft for ourselves. Capable, confident, beautiful, attractive, fit, wealthy. I got it all together. Will any of those things stand the judgment? There's one garment. There's one covering that will endure your whole life and will cover you for all of eternity. And it's the robe of Jesus' righteousness. When we try to cover ourselves, we're saying no to the only garment that actually fits. And just think about all the time that we spend trying to cover ourselves, the, the time and energy, the resource we put into convincing other people, convincing ourselves that, that we're something we're not. All the time we spend curating our own false image, we should be serving other people. See, if you're enslaved to covering yourself, if you're enslaved to hiding, you can't serve people from the heart because you're too worried about what they're going to think about you. But if you believe that Jesus covers you, it doesn't matter what they think about you. Now you're free to lay down your life, expend your resources for the good of Jesus' glory and not your own. 
And that's what it is to live free. That's what God wants for us. That's what, that's what we were made for. See, believing the gospel, it turns our covering ourselves into serving other people. That's what God has designed us for. That's what it means to reflect his image. As we believe the gospel, we're free to expend our energy, not in self-protection and hiding and covering, but in serving. I hope you see, beloved, that in Jesus, we have no need to lie. In Jesus, we're free. We're free from fear. We're free, freed from shame. We're freed from hiding. I guess the question is, will we live free? Will we live like these things are true? They are true. Will we live like it? We're freed by the truth so that we can live in the truth. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, Beloved, don't lie to each other. All y'all are in Jesus together. Don't lie to each other. You've stripped off your old sinful nature. All those shards of the broken glass of the image of God, that's been removed from you. You've stripped off the old sinful nature. You've put on your new nature. And you're being renewed as you learn to know your creator and become more like him. In Jesus, we're freed by the truth so that we can live in the truth. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask now your blessing upon your people here at Hope that they would rest in these truths, that they would know them, that the fear and the shame and the hiding would be lessened as they believe the gospel. Would their community groups and relationships and discipleship and men's and women's gatherings and children's ministries all point them to resting in Jesus where they can be free from fear, free from shame, free from hiding so that they can live the truth, loving you and serving other people. Father, for those here this morning that don't know Jesus by faith, would you draw them to yourself? Would you convince them of the futility of trying to curate an image for themselves when what is on offer from you is a garment that will last for all of eternity, a perfect and glorious righteousness that fits them perfectly? Father, draw them to yourself. For those here that do know Christ by faith, as you've opened their eyes to see ways that they are deceptive, would you give them the grace to repent, to turn from that sin of deception and lying and believe the grace that is theirs in Jesus and so be transformed more and more into his image. Father, in all these things, glorify yourself in your people. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.